Welcome to the June 2017 edition of RehabCast, brought to you by the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. This is the podcast for everyone in rehab medicine, one of the most exciting fields in modern healthcare. I'm your host, Ford Vox. In this episode, we're going to be talking with New York Times bestselling author Catherine Raymond about her remarkable and powerful new book, Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery. It's backed by HarperCollins. This book is going to be receiving major media attention, and frankly, the work deserves it. The good news is that quality therapists and physiatrists are the good guys in Raymond's tough, investigative take on the way American medicine has failed back pain patients. You're going to hear why. And ripped from the pages of the journal itself, we're going to be talking with Bethlen Houlihan and Sarah Eberhardt Skeels about their work keeping people living with spinal cord injury in the driver's seat, getting the quality medical care they need. But first, the news. From day one as a resident physician studying PM&R, it annoyed me that a number of key medical websites targeted towards docs, but chief among them Medscape, failed to acknowledge my specialty. Medscape is the granddaddy of all medical websites, tracing back to 1995. The name itself harkens back to the scape naming craze of the early internet. Do you remember Netscape? I personally spent a lot of time with Netscape crafting early HTML web pages while in college in the late 90s. Netscape fizzled out, but Medscape remains as big as ever. Medscape is the physician-oriented arm of WebMD, which is, of course, a juggernaut of consumer health information online. So WebMD Health Corporation is a major pipeline both for providers and consumers. When a doctor logs in onto Medscape, she's presented with her specialty homepage, but not if she's a physiatrist. We've got to pick something else, something else possibly related like orthopedics, maybe neurology, maybe anesthesiology as a stand-in for pain medicine. The problem extends to Medscape's newsmaking reports, like the annual one on physician compensation. You may have seen the headlines they generated this year about the ongoing gender pay gap between male and female physicians. For all specialties combined, men make 31% more than women, and in primary care, men are making about 15% more than women. Medscape's annual report breaks this down further by specialty, but one specialty is missing, PM&R. Women physiatrists, including Dr. Julie Silver, Michelle Tunis, and Stephanie Tao, waged a social media campaign to get Medscape's attention with an open letter about the problem, and it worked. Medscape says that it's going to include PM&R and future compensation reports. Julie also helped push retweets to my message to Medscape. The PM&R specialty is still missing on Medscape 22 years after the site was founded. I provided a screenshot of Medscape's specialty homepage list where we do not appear. Liz Naporent, Medscape's social media editor, tells me that the homepage is now underway. The addition of PM&R means more revision to the site's architecture than Medscape expected, but they're committed to making it happen. So we've had a productive few weeks in rehab social media. In the last episode, we talked about the White House's proposed budget, which included drastic NIH cuts. As of this recording, though, the NIH is out of the woods for now with a bipartisan deal that actually boosts the agency's budget by $2 million over the next five months. 
It seems that congressional Republicans and Democrats alike disagree vehemently with the scientific priorities set by the White House. HHS Secretary Tom Price had gone so far as to describe how he believed the federal government could save money by deleting infrastructure expenses from scientific grants. That's money that universities rely on. They need it to keep their labs running on a physical level, the building maintenance costs and so on. Now this is just a temporary budget bill, but the disconnect between Congress and the White House is reassuring for everyone interested in medical innovation. It takes two to tango and the White House is off slow dancing in a corner by itself right now. Failed back is a terrible term, no doubt, but it's hard to avoid. And it's important to keep in mind the failure is ours, the medical providers, not the patients. That said, one of the most famous failed backs in the country right now belongs to Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr. Uh, so let me just start and just uh, say that uh, you guys know my story. You know, last year and a half I've been dealing with chronic pain and after my back surgery. Um, it's been difficult, but I've you know managed it. I think I've coached until last night probably 150 straight games. Um, so this is something I've been dealing with and doing okay and um, ups and downs, but you know consistently coaching. This past week, for whatever reason, um, things got worse and uh, my symptoms got worse and I was not able to coach. The last few days have been difficult. You, you guys saw me at the end of game two. Uh, I was very uncomfortable. Um, I was uncomfortable at practice the other day, and uh, with things getting uh, worse, I just made the decision I couldn't couldn't coach. And uh, so, as of now, I'm consulting with my doctors. Um, I'm hoping for some improvement. If I can get some improvement, I'll get back on the sidelines. Uh, but I'm not going to do that unless I know I can help uh, the team. So, uh, I will not coach tomorrow night. Um, I'm in the midst of um, you know, continuing continuing to uh, discuss the situation with my doctors, trying to. Uh, find some solutions, and um, we'll go from there. But um, tomorrow I will not coach, and uh, you know, hopefully um, we can find some, some things to help over the next few days, and I'll get back out there. Is it the headaches that have come back? Or? I'm not going to go into details on okay. the symptoms, but, um, yeah, it's just you know, discomfort and pain, and, and uh, it's no fun. And I can tell you, if you're listening out there, if you have a back problem, stay away from surgery. <laughs> I can say that from the bottom of my heart. Rehab, rehab, rehab. You know, don't let anybody get in there. Are you feeling but, any better than you were yesterday? Feeling a little better today. Thanks for asking. Um, I will say this. This is not going to be a case where I'm coaching one night and not coaching the next. Um, I'm not going to do that to our, to our team, our staff. Um, we're hoping that over the, you know, the next, uh, next week or two, whatever it is, um, you know, I can sort of make a definitive uh, realization or deduction or, or just feel it that you know I'm going to do this. Right you heard the man rehab rehab rehab. Now Kerr is of course going a bit overboard by saying that nobody needs back surgery but for the run-of-the-mill causes of low back pain hey the man is right. We don't know why Kerr had his surgery exactly. He's obviously very physically fit. He's maintained his lean physique after his own 15-year NBA career. Uh, he played alongside Michael Jordan winning NBA championships with Chicago Bulls. In addition to the continuation of his back pain, Kerr's continued to suffer chronic headaches from an intraoperative dural tear. 
despite multiple attempts to close it. This is a very unusual situation to see a couple of years later. But while the details of what he's going through appear to be fairly unique, the idea of failing back surgery most assuredly is not. After all, that's why we've got this failed back terminology. This all makes for a very good segue into one of our featured interviews for this episode. Catherine Raymond is a highly successful investigative journalist who's published her work all over the place. And in 2007, she became a New York Times best-selling author with her book about memory carved in sand. Now she's back with Crooked, outwitting the back pain industry, and getting on the road to recovery. Catherine, this book is powerful investigative reporting, but it's infused with your own story as a patient, dealing with what at times has been rather disabling low back pain at various points in your life. I kind of see hints of your prior work uh, where questions about your own memory prompted the writing of Carved in Sand. This is an impressive amount of work over a long expanse of time. Tell me about the approach you took in this book. Uh, half of it's kind of an expose, and half of it is practical advice, also presented in a compelling narrative format. Well, uh, there was kind of a big difference between the first book, Carved in Sand, and this new book, Crooked. Um, the first book was about neuroscience, by and large. And so we did not have the such an issue with the stakeholders as I found with, this, uh, with, with Crooked. Um, in terms of neuroscience, I mean, there was a lot of NIH research. There were, there were people, of course, working on developing drugs, and you know, there may have been some conflicts of interest involved in their work. But as soon as I landed on this topic, I realized that I had fallen into in what I describe as a massive sinkhole of hype. Um, and so I wanted to be sure that readers would get some positive, constructive, even prescriptive type of um, help from the book. Uh, but I also wanted to be very sure that I could do all the investigative reporting that um, increasingly, as every day went by, I realized I had more and more and more to do. So we divided, I divided this book into two halves, and the first is called Problems, and the second part is called Solutions. Um, and the first part is a very, very deep dive into all that is really, really terribly wrong um, with the back pain industry, um, talking about um, how much what we consider conventional treatment is in fact not uh, necessarily helpful, can be harmful, certainly is very, very expensive, and um, is really running up quite a tab for the United States. And then the second half um, goes more directly into approaches that have been shown to work for many people. I mean, as you're certainly well aware, uh, when something is not likely to make a fortune for a pharmaceutical company or a device manufacturer, that, uh, that modality or technique or treatment is rarely extremely well investigated. So in that case, I really had to look at who who does it help? Why does it help? Who's not helped um, in terms of recommending or offering options that um, people could really sink their teeth into and get going um, on their own um, recovery? You know, it's it's hard for me to convey. People just need to read this book uh, to to really see the amazing presentation that you've done, in particular that first half of the book. Uh, not just cataloging, but the way you describe and kind of your narrative discovery of all these incredible cases of just 
fraud and waste and abuse and perhaps you know, not, not all of it with folks entirely going in it just to crassly make money, but people kind of tricking themselves along the way from the practitioner standpoint. It's just so damning, uh, the first half of this book. It's just absolutely incredible. I think everybody in, in rehabilitation understands that uh, we've had difficulty treating chronic pain and chronic back pain in particular, and we've seen treatments come and go. But when you present it the way that you have presented it, uh, it is really just uh, eye-opening, even to somebody like myself, who is obviously more familiar with this background than the average reader. I mean, I'm discovering things page after page that I did not quite know know about in terms of the the depth of the depravity. Um, you know, it, it, it is just it's it's incredible um, what, what you've put together here. I mean, just some of the precise uh, examples, just going after failed treatment after failed treatment and, and the history of some of these things. You, you delve into everything from the, you know, the, the failed artificial discs and vertebroplasty procedures and so forth and uh, the various issues with chiropractic and, and so forth. Um, it, it's hard to know uh, where to start, but when you, uh, when you kind of... It's really interesting putting... Uh, you know, you can you can delve into each of these things individually. I mean, you can look at uh, the, the chapter that I called Hazardous Images, which is about really the history of MRI and how it came to pass that practically anybody who has back pain for more than, say, a couple of weeks either is sent for an MRI or demands to have an MRI. And why is that exactly? And, and what does that tell them? And a, a good example is uh, my brother, uh, who's a few years younger than I, so he's in his mid-50s, um, told me that he, he'd been on a plane uh, from Hawaii to New York, so that's you know about 12 hours in total, and, and he was having a lot of pain in his leg, and he was very unhappy, and, and I gave him some tips as to what he might do, and I told him how long it would probably take to get over it, and what he might probably should not be doing, um, such as sitting around in chairs or lying around on sofas. And, um, and he took my advice and he made some improvement, but he was bound and determined to go get that MRI. And I sent him the chapter because we just today got the actual books actually, but I sent him the chapter and he hazardous images and he, <laughs> he didn't say anything except I just ordered six copies. <laughs> So, so, um, he just didn't know, you know, he, he is living, they, people are living in a world constructed for them by, um, a medical industrial complex and they don't really understand what they're being offered. Yeah. And it's a problem that just touches everybody. It's almost absurd. The extent to which you're, you know, sitting in a random cafe and you're encountering new characters in your book and you're following you know, their course of treatment and so forth, and, you know, telling them maybe you ought not to do this. Well, I'm going to do that anyway. And then, and then following up years later and everything, it's everywhere you turn, everybody has their own back pain story. You know, I believe as a, as a I've been an investigative reporter for four decades, so <laughs> getting a little long in the tooth here. But I do believe that there is such a thing as the universal stream, and this is not a spiritual notion. This is the notion that as soon as I start really looking into something, 
It is if I am standing at the edge of a river and everything coming down that river is rela relates to the topic I'm working on. To the point where it almost was comical. I would get a cup of coffee and there'd be a woman in there who'd been horribly, horribly harmed uh, from her epidural steroid injection that she got because she thought it would be uh, helpful because her grandchildren were coming over the Christmas holidays and she wasn't feeling quite right. and. In fact, now, and this is obviously a very unusual situation, but it definitely does happen. She is paralyzed from the waist down. Um, I was walking the dog when a woman, you know, and I'm a very, uh, as a journalist at least, not necessarily personally, but as a journalist, I'm a, quite an outgoing person. So people tend to want to tell me their stories. And, and this woman walking her dog told me, that one of her best friends had had an artificial disc replacement and that his life was ruined. And, you know, that led me to another story. So the stories just kept on coming and, um, and they still do today. I can barely get through a half a day outside of my home uh, without running into somebody who's got some, something they need to tell me about. Well, Catherine, after this book hits the shelves, you know, that's not gonna, that's not going to change and that's going to be even more magnified. I've adopted a new policy for it, I have to tell you, which is if people want to tell me their stories, that's just fantastic. If they really would like, and this is usually the case, me to help them explore their options, I then ask them to just immediately order five copies and then I'll yeah. help them. <laughs> but I can't, uh, you know, my, I would get no work at all done <laughs> if, I, if I devoted my life to helping them explore their options. I at least need them to buy five copies of the book. So to all your listeners, please, please immediately order five copies and give them to your patients. Yeah, and just, you know, again, practitioners themselves need to read this as well. I mean, you know, certainly... Most of us are familiar with a lot of this information from the, the academic uh, perspective, but you are, you're teaching me things here as well about the, the history of this as well. And it's important just to see from an investigative journalistic perspective, and it is, you know, this type of eyes wide open patient experience, what, what you have encountered and the folks that you have talked to and how various treatments are perceived as well. I'd like to delve into a good example. Uh, tell me about the story of Eugene Kerrigy and the way he took on the Medtronic-infused bone morphogenic protein product. Mm. Well, Kerrigy, is a, he's a great guy. I really, I'm a big fan of his. And um, I spent some time with him at Stanford fairly early in the research process. And, and we talked about a lot of things, uh, but we didn't talk about BMP really. That It didn't come up. And so I was startled to say the least when I suddenly saw uh, his I saw his journal and he had exploded um, this this fraudulent scheme that had been brought upon um, orthopedic surgeons throughout the United States and Europe um, who had been convinced by uh, journal articles that they should be using uh, BMP uh, in all of their spinal fusion patients. Um, and this was a, a very predominant idea at the time. And suddenly these articles, what this was all refuted all of a sudden. Um, and so 
um, you know, I had to really, I had to read all of them, of course, and then I had to read the source material on all of them, of course, and, and then I needed to talk to um, a number of experts um, who were involved, such as Harlan Krumholtz, who ran uh, <clears throat> the Yoda program at Yale, which helped to further investigate exactly what had happened. And I was quite shocked, and I explore this in a lot of detail in the book, um, by how long, how much earlier it had been well known that this substance had carcinogenic properties, um, that it could cause retrograde ejaculation, which uh, in case, uh, I, I don't know if we need to go into what that is, but basically semen is not going the right direction, it's basically going back into the bladder. Uh, <clears throat> that all of these negatives existed and marketing had built an entire construct that was a house of cards. This product that everyone needed that was earning Medtronic, Medtronic hundreds of millions of dollars a year in increasing numbers every year was actually not necessary and was fairly dangerous. So, um, you know, that, that just, it took me, I, I think I've spent close to a year working on that particular topic. Mm. It, it is, it's compellingly uh, presented, uh, the, the whole Medtronic story, uh, and, you know, you fear, you know, uh, are enough protections in place that that type of thing can't happen again? Probably not. There definitely are not, and I have to say that, um, I don't know how political you would like to get, but... Um, Given what we see now in terms of leadership at the FDA and at Health and Human Services, um, I have a feeling we're going to see pharmaceutical companies and device manufacturers have freedoms they have never had before. So instead of seeing less of this and more protection of the American people's health, I think we're going to see we're going to see much less protection. Um, yeah. And it is and, going and to be buyer beware for people who are not competent to beware. And, and that is why, you know, I, I am an unusual case here in that I've been writing about medicine and science and health for a very long time, and I know the questions to ask. And to a large extent, in my own experience, I was getting taken for a ride. Um, and so it's, it's quite incredible to think what your average Joe, who is quite disabled by his back pain, and maybe can't go to work, and really is having a hard time supporting a family, and maybe is addicted to opioids, what that person is really going to be able to do. And, and that is why I wrote Crooked, so that they would, have, they would have the knowledge to make better choices. And yeah, I mean, it's going to make people more skeptical consumers, which they, which they should be. I think it's important, again, for clinicians, many of whom are listening to this podcast, to read as well, to understand the extent to which we can be hoodwinked uh, by the medical literature as well and the ways in which uh, what we are uh, shown may not be the full story. Um, and again, delving into some of the specific examples that kind of teach these broader lessons, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated how you're actually able to, to speak to people who admit to making some of the mistakes along the way. You spoke with uh, Dr. Uh, Mary Jensen, 
uh, the woman behind uh, the vertebroplasty procedure. You spoke to Dr. Russell Portnoy, uh, who of course worked with uh, Purdue to heavily promote uh, OxyContin. Uh, both of these folks, you were able to, to you tell the, the story in great detail, very compellingly, and you speak with them, and tell me what they told you. Well, you know, Dr. Jensen, um, who is just the most lovely person, by the way, um, you know, she was extremely frank, and we, as you say, it's, it's all in the book, and I'd love everyone to read it, but she talked about um, the fact that, and this is so true with so many procedures, that they quickly get into the wrong hands. They get into the hands of, of, of medical professionals who either are not particularly scrupulous, who are trying to make a bunch of money off of them, and don't completely understand who they who the proper patient select they don't understand patient selection and that was Dr. Jensen's number one point is that there was poor patient selection and when you have that in a trial um, or in any kind of a study what happens is your results are skewed you don't if you don't do the procedure on the people who actually need the procedure then the outcomes will not be what they should be so I mean, eventually vertebroplasty was shown not to be any more effective than not doing vertebroplasty. Well, I don't know. If you had done vertebroplasty exclusively on patients who were the cor cor correctly selected, you might have gotten different outcomes there. Um, and interestingly, you know, it, what she went through, um, Nobody should have to go through having an entire lifetime's work suddenly obliterated by a report saying, hey, you know, it's no better than placebo, basically. Or not placebo, I'm sorry, a sham procedure. It's no better than a sham procedure. As well-meaning as she was, though, there is a lesson to be learned, though, for other well-meaning uh, physicians and therapists and so forth to recognize uh, you may well be wrong, and had you best go out there, you know, I mean, she's not exactly an evangelist, but she did teach a lot of people to do that procedure, uh, and, you know, you know, she did, was she on enough solid ground? very deeply, and she said in the book that um, sometimes when she went, uh, when she, she would often be called up um, in court cases, in malpractice cases, and when she would she heard what had been done in the name of her procedure she was just horrified and she was she was mortified to see what had been done and how and often how poorly it had been done um and yes you had, it it's it's very very difficult it's it's kind of operating in negative space because you know as physicians you want to develop uh procedures and techniques that you know, you feel really will work. I mean, this is this is why you, people get into this game, and you believe in them, and you do them on the properly selected patients, and they do work. And then it's hard; it's pretty much impossible to say, "Well, gee, that worked on them. I, I won't let that. I'm not going to let anybody else do it, and I'm not going to, you know, spread the news." And sometimes there is a major financial incentive in spreading that news. 
and then people start doing the procedure on just about everybody. Sometimes they do it poorly. And we have in the book example after example after example of this happening. Um, and and it's, it's a shame, but it's something that I wouldn't know how to, to stop on the end of, uh, on the physician's end. I just think the patient needs to understand what is being offered and to really be able to look at the evidence. And that is very, very difficult for patients because the evidence is so buried. And you go online and you look up something like, you know, minimally invasive spine surgery or laser spine surgery, and you will be absolutely bombarded with data that suggests to you that it is the greatest thing since sliced bread, that it works. Patient testimonials, all kinds of statistics. It's all, that's all nonsense. If you actually knew how to find your way into PubMed, into the studies, you would know right away that it is not a more effective approach and that there are, there are some uh, commensurate risks that are never identified in any of the marketing literature. This is extremely difficult for patients to tell the difference between the marketing literature and, and um, you know, the, the real data, which is much harder for them to find. I mean, ultimately, that's that's the responsibility that uh, that that good clinicians have to their patients. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to uh, filter through uh, the trash and what's good and what's appropriate. And, and you talk about your your finding good people uh, along the way to who who've treated you. And uh, I'm not going to spill the beans by talking about who treated you poorly, but that's definitely in the book uh, as well. And uh, it is a fascinating read, also. But fortunately, you have found your way back on track. Um, you know, uh, PM&R, my own field, uh, doesn't come out entirely unscathed, or mostly the good guys in the book, which is, which is reassuring. Yes, um, you, you mostly are, and, and really for good reason, too, because you are uh, really unsung heroes, I'd say, in, in the world of back pain treatment. Um, you really do know what has to be done. Sometimes people go off track because there, once again, are, are financial reasons for that, and it can be very hard um, for any, any specialty that does not typically do surgery or implant anything uh, to make a living. Um, and so there are some perverse incentives that do lead PM&R doctors to spend their time giving um, epidural steroid injections or doing other sorts of interventional procedures um, and certainly that that happens and we know it does uh, but I met so many excellent PM and our doctors over the course of my uh, reporting people who absolutely opened my eyes and showed me the way and um, and really are the future of treatment in this area um, and I and I think that comes through very strongly in the book and to be clear, of course, when we, when we talk about procedures and that, that type of thing, we are talking about run-of-the-mill back pain here. Of course, there are individual types of uh, conditions that, that require certain procedures and so forth. But as far as your average middle-aged degenerative back and so forth, um, you, you lay out very clearly the, the, the evidence against uh, uh, poking around uh, too much. In terms of kind of talking about uh, you know, what's, what's right here, you, you delve into and try some, some programs, some kind of chronic uh, pain rehabilitation programs, pain boot camps, and that, that type of thing. Tell me about those types of programs and what works about that. 
Well, I was fascinated by those kinds of programs. Um, I, I always had the sense that um, people were going, they were getting sent to, you know, physical therapy. They were getting prescriptions, as they like to say, for physical therapy and going to what I refer, well, what physical therapists, in fact, refer to as cookie cutter physical therapy, um, where they would often maybe spend a very brief time with the, the therapist and then wind up with an assistant um, who sort of watched them go through their paces and they would be working from a, a page of, um, you know, sort of uh, pencil scrawled um, little pictures of what exercises and how to perform them and nobody was getting anywhere doing that and often they receive three and four different um, prescriptions over you know several years and when they were finished with those um, you know they were declared to have quote unquote failed physical therapy and what I knew and I knew it from my own experience was that this was the most half-hearted half-assed effort ever because I am, uh, although not what I would say athletic, I, I get out a lot. I hike, I bike, I ride, I haven't skied in a while, but I do ski and, and you know, I love, I love to be active and lying there on the floor and raising one foot one inch just did not strike me as something that was going to solve this problem. I had the sense it was going to have to be much more intensive than that. And I started to turn up these remarkable people. Um, I've referred to them as the back whisperers in the book. Um, and these are people who often are not whispering, by the way. They are generally, in this case, very large, powerful, and forceful men. <laughs> I don't know why this business attracts them, but it, but it does. Uh, people like Brian Nelson, um, at, who has now retired, but uh, created a, he was an orthopedic surgeon who got good and sick of it and, and seeing his patients, back patients, not do well. And he created a large program in the Minneapolis St. Paul area uh, that was uh, called Physicians Neck and Back, all, all exercise, all rehab, all the time. Um, and then we have people such as uh, James Rainville in Boston, um, who, who really determined that what was needed was progressive, quantitative, intensive exercise. The exercise itself is great, it's, it's wonderful, but what it does in every case is really change what's known, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, is uh, fear avoidant behavior. Because if you have just finished picking up uh, four crates full of uh, steel bricks and placing them on shelves five times each, you are just not going to be afraid of getting the groceries out of the car anymore. You're going to become much more physically um, brave and that is going to make a difference. So some of these programs vary a lot. Some of them are um, four weeks long, some you come twice a week, some, they vary greatly and very tremendously in cost also. Um, but basically the focus is always on getting rid of fear avoidant behavior. And I think that's something we really have to think about um, as PM&R doctors. I think it's very, you have to be very, very careful. You have to be careful 
You have to be careful about telling your patients to be careful. Do not uh, spend too much time telling them to be careful uh, because it's, it causes them to become more fear avoidant. And I had personal experience with that because early, long before I actually started writing the book, I spent time, I went to see a chiropractor who told me, I said, well, you know, I, I, really feel terrible and I have to get on a plane and I have to go here and there and give lectures. And he said, well, I hope you don't plan to pick up your luggage. And I'm like, well, yeah, I plan to pick up my luggage considering I'm on a lecture tour and I need to carry my luggage. And he said, well, that would be very dangerous for you. And I thought, oh my God, I think I'm going to be impaired for the rest of my life as a result of this. I, I could be disabled forever. Well, of course not, you know, but that's the sort of thing. What, what doctors tell patients can have a tremendous effect on when they recover, how long they recover, or if they ever do. Yeah, it's amazing. And just seeing it from that perspective as well, because you, you talk to other patients too, and kind of their stories and, uh, you know, what they were told by doctors along the way. And, it's how you say it. It's certainly what you say, uh, recognizing the, the power of your words and how this in, truly interacts with the psychology behind pain as well. You know, much of it's subconscious. Also, um, you know, I, I think, you know, certainly folks in my field are, are familiar with these concepts, but it's good to see uh, the way that you've presented it here. And it's just so compelling. This is definitely a book that uh, that I'll be happy to pass out. And I, I would really encourage um uh, the folks uh, listening to, to read it for themselves. It's, it's, it's amazing that it is a, to say that it is a page turner about back pain. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> you sure you don't want to retract that statement? <laughs> I, I, I really wanted it to be that. I really did. And I say that, you know, my brand of journalism is, okay, take me by the hand and I am going to lead you through some very, very, very complicated science and I'm going to make you like it. <laughs> and if I succeeded doing, in doing that, I am extremely happy. Uh, you did for me, and I think you will for lots of other readers, too. So, um, yeah, again, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. And now folks need to go out and read the book for themselves. All right. Thank you so much for speaking with me. And now in our highlight from the June issue of the journal, we've got the latest from Snursic. No, that's not a disease state that you skipped in pathology class. That's the insider shorthand for the new Spalding New England Regional Spinal Cord Injury Center. It's the new home of the New England Regional Spinal Cord Injury Model System. We're talking with Bethlen Houlihan, uh, whose new office is Director of Dissemination and Knowledge Translation at Snursic, and Sarah Everhart Skeels. She was an administrator for the former model system, and she's now a consultant for SNRSIC. They both conducted important new research on augmenting chronic disease management and SCI with a carefully crafted peer-based intervention. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So you're joining me today from Albuquerque, correct? Indeed. Yep. Not, not from Boston. You're there for the um, American Spinal Cord Injury Association Conference. How's it going so far? It's going well. Uh, we are into, well, tomorrow is the last day, yeah. last half day, yeah. and it's been a very uh, good conference, well attended, and uh, there's been some very good information shared by, by, in all of the tracks. 
Yeah, I got to say, these kind of conferences, you get there and there's people talking and they all talk to each other and everyone gets excited and uh, spurs all these ideas. So it's, it's always good. Always good. Did you guys present on this topic? Bethlehem is tomorrow morning. And uh, tomorrow morning. I had a poster. I've, I've had a poster for talking about the peer health coach role in, in okay. this particular study. Good. Now, uh, I did want to delve into just uh, shortly here. I understand it's complicated. The changes going on in your model system. So it was the New England Regional Spinal Cord Injury Center. Now the Spalding name is being added. Bethlin, could you tell me about that? Sure. So um, we previously there were two model systems in Boston, and that happened for the 2011 to 2016 cycle. And then we decided to work together and, and merge and create a newly uh, strengthened and just a better building together collaborating center. Uh, and in turn, my um, one of the, the research director, the Grant Allen Jetty, who had been PI previously, is coming. We're, we're going to be moving over to the Spalding campus uh, as of July 1st. So... Um, will will have be more integrated at that point but it's it's really it's been really great to to merge together and have one place and, and build on all the strengths that we each had and, and bring those together yeah it seems seems to make quite a lot of sense with all the major rehab institutions involved in, in Boston there which obviously uh, many people would argue Spalding is at the center so with with regards to this uh, this research you know it really delves into the fact that um, Maybe folks get good, uh, hopefully, uh, good care soon after a spinal cord injury and uh, may enter into a, uh, a comprehensive rehabilitation program, although certainly we've seen that doesn't happen with, with everyone. But you're addressing chronic spinal cord injury and the problems that uh, folks can encounter, certainly accessing care. In particular, a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis in this study on access to primary care, it seems. Um, only about 56% of people living with spinal cord injury even have access to a spinal cord injury specialist. That's a big problem in the first place. What you've got here is kind of uh, uh, more of a, a grassroots, ground-up model of uh, peers helping themselves. Um, it, the, the intervention, you've called it uh, My Care, My Call. Uh, tell me what, that, what that's about. Uh, well, uh, I guess that we coined that term because we felt that we the main focus of this intervention is really about people having the opportunity to decide what matters to them and how they want to move forward. So true empowerment for people so that no one else setting the agenda for them, that they decide what is going to be the best thing for them at that time. And you can give them information and help them make those decisions. But so in, in it really sums up that this is it's my care and it's my call how I take care of myself and it also happens to happen over the phone so it was a nice little, <laughs> nice little combination yeah, a little yes. play on words there Sarah you participated in the design of this research project but you're also somebody living with a spinal cord injury yourself so you serve as one of the peer health coaches in the trial yes I was one of two peer health coaches in this study and I, I was very fortunate to have been able to have directed a lot of the uh, work, working on the training and how we were going to go about this intervention. 
It seems that there's kind of some psychological theory going on here. It's not just kind of a free-form conversation. Uh, it's kind of motivational uh, interviewing. You, you reference something called the trans-theoretical model. What, what is the trans-theoretical model, and how does that apply to my care, my call? The, the trans-theoretical model of, of, of change, or, uh, it's a uh, model of looking at um, health behavior change and looking, th so there's, there's a, a variety of stages. There's pre-contemplation where somebody hasn't even thought of, even thought about becoming a part of their own health care or, or changing their, behavior, their health behavior. There is uh, contemplation where someone has moved on to thinking, oh, maybe I should change my behavior of one kind or another. So for example, with a spinal cord injury, I keep getting these urinary tract infections. Uh, somebody in pre-contemplation wouldn't even identify that they should do something different in their life to address the reoccurrence. Someone in contemplation would be thinking, wow, I keep getting these urinary tract infections. They're exhausting and they're really kind of getting in the way of my life. I wonder what I could do about it. Um, then there is the planning stage where someone is actually making, you know, thinking about action and changing and planning how they're going to do it. So gathering resources, talking with other people, maybe going to a doctor to talk to them about uh, different ways of, of um, managing their bladder so that they don't get these infections, what they can be doing, taking cranberry pills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the uh, maintenance phase where... Oh, you, you forgot action. Oh, action. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Thank you. A lot of phases. I don't have this in front of me. Um, so uh, pre-contemplation, contemplation, planning, action, where they're actually doing it, they're making the change, and then there is this maintenance phase of they're able to sustain the change. So we worked, and what's so really great about this model is that you're not, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You're working with people at different stages, so you wouldn't want to give someone in pre-contemplation a bunch of information that they, um, what they need to do to change their bladder ma uh, management because that would be, they'd be like, I don't even know why you're giving this to me. I'm not going to look at it. Um, it would be more about, you'd be more talking with them about, wow, how is this affecting you? And um, is this, how, you know, trying to get them to realize how much this is affecting them. And that's where the motivational interviewing skills come in sometimes with the reflective listening and the, um, you know, we, we had this tool we called Shared Story where, where we use our experience, we meaning our, us peer health coaches, uh, my other, the other peer health coaches, Stathis Hasiotis, we call him Stathi. Um, anyway, we would learn how to use our experience uh, to share information with our peer, but always with permission first, which is a very, very motivational interviewing back, background. So definitely the, the peer health coaches, I mean, it really matters that the training that they get, they have to be, they have to be really good at what they do. Otherwise it's not going to be effective. Yes, but you'd be surprised how easy it was. Uh, I think we were surprised. So what we developed, uh, was sort of a toolkit. We called it the PHC toolkit. And it was a bunch of, of um, semi-structured uh, scripts because we were working with people over the phone. So it gave us language so that Stathi and I were both very consistent with how we worked with people 
and how we spoke with them. And then there were fill in the blanks because obviously everybody's going to be approaching things differently. But uh, And so we were able to follow those scripts pretty nicely. We developed those, obviously. We did a lot of work developing that. It was about 12 weeks of training. Uh, and um, we also got certified in uh, something called brief action planning uh, through the Center for Collaboration, Motivation, and Innovation, at, uh, which is out of uh, Canada. It's in Canada. Yeah. Good. Vancouver. That was good. Vancouver CCMI. It's easier to say CCMI than remember all those words. Uh, but and brief action planning is a smart, smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and timely. Um, and we learned how, it's a very specific process, and we became certified in that all through the phone. Most of our training was done through over the phone and through webinars. We didn't do a lot of face-to-face -face training because we weren't going to be working with people face-to-face. -face. And there was a lot of... They did role plays, and they did uh, – they it actually ended up being about 40 hours of training yeah, yeah. by the time all was said and done. So this this is a, a tool, the brief action planning, that's being used on a lot of different health conditions, and this is being applied newly to spinal cord injury through this study. You got it. You've done a lot of research. Thank you. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Just putting two and two together there. But yeah, you got okay. it. Yes, and this was a novel application, but really the motivational part. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> they did. We, they worked with us. They were so great because I think um, what we found was that we needed to adapt a little because they were generally using it in primary care practices. Um, and so with this, the relationship of the peer health coach with the peer, we found that they were having these longer um, standing relationships and conversations. And so we just needed to shift BAP, the brief action planning is actually a very structured flow conversation. So we just had to shift it a little so that we could kind of, they could flow in and out of it and adapt it. And people might actually be, they, but it was always in mind and always kind of helped to guide the conversation and keep it focused. And people may not want to make an official plan, but you could still help them to set goals that would get them there without them feeling like they had made some very structured plan if they weren't feeling like that was something that they wanted to do. Is that accurate? Yeah. So the brief action, we thought before we started, before we actually went into the field and did this intervention, Stathi and I were both so focused on we've got to make brief action plans with every single person. And we didn't think about the fact that not everybody, not every single person is ready to make a big goal, especially someone in pre-contemplation or even contemplation. So we had to sort of, so we did do brief action planning with people, but there are so many things that leading up to getting someone ready to make an actual plan. And we really learned that those are the things that have to happen first. So the peer health coach, not only are they a role model, but they're also a supporter before you can really be an advisor. Obviously, uh, trust so by advisor, I mean using brief action planning or sh teaching someone, giving, sharing information with them that they're ready to hear. Um, and you really, you need to build the trust and the relationship. And then it's, it's incredible what that little bit of time that took anywhere from two weeks. Sometimes it only took one week, mostly two weeks of calls, which are only two calls um, in our protocol. Or, or sometimes it took a month to get somebody to understand that, yes, we also have a spinal cord injury, and yes, we're actually here 
for you, and you are going to be the one that is going to drive this. We aren't going to drive anything. We're not you, and we don't mm -hmm. want to be you. We just want to be here to support you, to help strategize with you so that you can become a better, uh, better at your um, self-management skills, really. Now, it is a randomized trial, and folks are getting either this pure health motivation, and you know, I kind of already feel motivated to this interview. You're doing a great job. Oh, thank you. Uh, you're either getting that, uh, but both, both groups are getting the resource guide. And uh, the, so the resource guide, you know, certainly we do have positive results in, in the trial that we're discussing here. The, the pure health co coaches are essential. But what all is in that, that resource guide? Uh, yes, that is a good question. The resource guide, we felt that one, so one of the things that's kind of a misnomer about the term self-management is the idea that you do it all by yourself. And that is just not true. None of us do it all by ourselves. When you um, self-manage, it just means you're able to recognize the things that you need help with and find the support that you need or reach out to say, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you support me? Because I, I don't even know right now. <laughs> so being willing and able to do that, and sometimes it, it takes courage, it takes energy. Um, so we felt the resources and kind of helping to vet so that people didn't have to take the mental energy to uh, navigate through was, was part of what we were trying to do. So we created this resource guide that would have um, chapters um, based on certain kind of uh, wellness and health topics and skills that we were trying to get them around self-management and goal setting. And at the end of each of those would be uh, vetted resource lists for local resources and more information. We had worksheets in there. The funny thing is, is that um, people wouldn't really use it on their own. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you, I'm, you know why. It's overwhelming. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful, it but was. it was overwhelming. No, the resource guide was beautiful. I just mean information in general in today's world is overwhelming because there's so much of it. And when you have a spinal cord injury, you can type in spinal cord injury and out will pop a myriad of, of things. And you can go to, there's so many resource, you know, Shepherd has a resource center. Craig has a resource center. The, you know, spinalcord.org. You've got um, Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. You have United Spinal. You have... Um, UAB, you have, well, spinal, spinalcord.org, sorry, but there's so much and you don't know, like where, and after a while it gets really overwhelming. So having the vetted resources were really more helpful for the peer health coaches in the end, because what we did is we extra vetted. We did, we were like this additional filter. So when we would talk to one of our peers about information we would we were able to understand the kind of information they needed and then we could share that particular information with them so we could say why don't you go into page five of the resource guide or why don't you look at this website from the resource guide so we sort of taught them how to use a resource guide and one of one of, of a very short cool story about that one of the people that i found out later after all this because i you know we were working with people but we didn't always know the, what, that what we were doing was impacting them because we, weren't, we were blinded to what they were finding in results, obviously. So this one individual I worked with didn't read, didn't, he knew how to read, he didn't like to read, he didn't want anything to do with the resource guide. He was, um, he was very dependent on his partner to do a lot of information seeking and care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
after the intervention, I was told that he, he, was, he started to look at information and he started to read books. And he started to understand that information came out of books and that he could find information. And that made me feel so um, positive about the interactions that I had with him because um, I was never sure. And because he never said, oh, yeah, you know, we would always, you would end a call with a plan of some kind. Maybe the plan was just that you were going to, when, it, when you were going to call them again. Or sometimes the, pl the plan was, so are you, I'm going to text you information, because texting is, is how everybody wants to communicate now. I'm going to, and apps, right? So I'm going to text you this information, and when I talk to you again, hopefully you can tell me what you think of it. And... You know, that was sort of how things would end with a lot, some people. The, a call could end with either, all right, well, I'll talk to you next Wednesday at 9, or it could be, can you look at this? I'm going to send you some information by text. You can look at it and tell me what you think about it when we talk next week on Wednesday. Um, or it would be uh, a brief action plan where someone would, would have a goal of, I'm going to talk to my doctor on Tuesday, and I'm going to find out this information that I want to find out, and I'm going to relay it back to you on Wednesday when I talk to you. Um, so it could be in a variety of different uh, people were working on in variety of different stages. I feel like what y'all are doing is the missing ingredient in so many different potential health conditions and health interventions. And and you mentioned the glut of information that's huge. There's a glut of technologies. There's so much that these supercomputers in our pockets can do that. You know, are we really going to do that or not? Uh, there's so much as, as with with all of these, all the technologies, all the information that would benefit from coaching, and that's essentially a lot of what you know expert clinicians are doing as well. Talking with their patients, it's kind of managing the information, telling you what's important. Theoretically, uh, patients, anybody can go out and get this information for themselves. It's the expertise, uh, whether from the clinical perspective or from the lived perspective, or uh, somebody such as yourself who, who has both that, that really makes all the difference and that, that conversation, the relationship, uh, and really helping slice and dice through, you know, so much information that's out there. I can just see an enormous amount of application of spinal cord injury being just one of them. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, uh, and I can tell you as a peer health coach, as I went through this, I personally became much more responsible about some, some things that I had been letting slack, to be completely honest. Because uh, you have to, you know, if you're going to talk the talk, you got to, like, you know, perform yourself. So I made, you know, I got my, I've, my primary care physician had retired, and I was, uh, I don't know, and I eventually, so I was, like, I, was, I was talking to people about finding a primary care physician. I'm like, Sarah, what up? You have to find your own primary care physician. So it sort of was motivating for me. And, and I know for Stathi, he pursued some things that he had sort of been letting slack because it's just sometimes what we do. You have to be such an active consumer, um, healthcare consumer. You have to be so active to be successful, especially when you have a chronic condition like spinal cord injury. And um, everybody needs a little bit of help to do it. So I would get I would get inspired, I don't usually use that word, but I will use it here. I would become inspired by some of the people I was working with because I, we were working with people and, and who ended up in skilled nursing facilities, uh, who were, you know, wasn't just, it were, everybody was, was, was community dwelling, but the facilities they were living in were um, anywhere from their own home 
to like a long-term rehab facility or a sniff. So, um, but you know, it's, it goes back to what Bethlehem was saying earlier about this concept of self-management and it's, it's about how do you use your networks? How do you use your supports? And we really help people identify who their personal supports were, who their experts' supports were, and how to use them to be doing the things that they, to be addressing what they needed to be addressed, what needed to be addressed. So problem solving. Sure. And in terms of measurement, uh, Bethlehem, you, you guys picked the peer activation measure. What, why is that a, a good choice for this type of study? So yes, it's the patient activation measure. And um, we, we really did a lot, as you, I'm sure you know, um, if, you're, if you can't measure it, then it's like it didn't happen, right? So we did everything we could to try to also capture this in all different ways and qualitatively as well. But um, the patient activation measure is actually, really follows along with the trans theoretical model but it actually uses four stages. So there's levels, um, it's scored, and then it correlates to four different levels of activation for a person in their willingness and ability to self-manage So um, for their health. So it was just really a perfect fit with what we were trying to do. It has been, a, just, it's just starting to be applied in spinal cord injury, and it's been applied with chronic conditions, but it's been, it's been widely used. There's this whole website um, where they to talk about and, and it's all uh, about where it's been used and it's also been tracked to outcomes and cost efficiencies and lower rehospitalizations. Um, so it, it's a very compelling measure in that way. So we felt that if we could um, in this shorter study, we didn't have a, a, as long a follow-up as we'd like to have in, a, in, in another um, iteration, but um, for this shorter study, we felt like that would be a really good indicator. If we could get movement on that with just 84 people total, only 42 in the intervention group and 42 in the control, and even then we had a few dropouts, um, then we, we, we would know that we, we were on to something. What, what, are, what are the results were you kind of most pleased about? Which element? Um, well, I think that we were pretty proud that with only, with just that many people, we were, we were really able to see some change. But I think uh, on the activation for people. The big thing that comes to mind for me, though, so there was also, we, we, people said that they had less limitation in their social and role, um, social activities and roles that they had in, in their lives, which is really awesome, and also their quality of life, their, how satisfied they were with their life, which are, I mean, those are big things. Those, those mat, that shows that they were, there was, they were getting something meaningful out of this, and that, that really makes a difference. Um, but I think the big things... So there was that data, and it, we, you have to see some movement on that to know that, you, you know, across all different people, you manage to, has to see something happen. But then there's the individual stories, and I think that's the thing that was so um, gratifying to hear about and for Sarah and Stathi to share and to recognize that we were all in this and feeling how meaningful it was um, to be able to be in these people's lives and, and, and help them to realize that they, they can do, they can decide where they want to go next and, and have support to do that. Yeah, that's definitely huge. Now, the Archives is an international journal with, you know, a readership from all over, we're receiving papers from all over. This paper, to me, falls into a category 
of something that to some extent that's unique to some of the faults of the American healthcare system, I think, or, or one of those studies from which folks in other first world nations must be looking at this and on us as, as yet here's the Americans doing yet another thing to try to make up for their faulty <laughs> system that they have in the first place. I mean, it really is when you think about it, it's all about the crumbling healthcare system or the inability to access, you know, you know, proper uh, care for for yourself and our lack of kind of a holistic integrated system. Um, do you guys see it that way, or do you, and also just in terms of your interaction with the international spinal cord community, do you feel like uh, other countries have some of these problems too? That it's not just uh, again us the Americans dealing with what we usually deal with in our healthcare. Well, it's funny when I was presenting my poster to, uh, during the poster session. Today, I was visited by a woman uh, who's from uh, Switzerland who was talking with me about their peer system and their peer support system and, and their, their spinal cord injury system from injury to out in the community. And people are connected more in Switzerland uh, from their rehab stays are much longer and they stay connected to their rehab for, for at least a year. Whereas, as you know, in the U.S., it's, what, two months, three months? Uh, and what, but even she was telling me this advisor role, this, this peer health coach. So the peer support is good, but the ability to train somebody to work with, to train a peer to work with another to help uh, coach them uh, is, is something that she feels is also needed there in their system. They don't have that. Um, nice. It's, it's kind of a radical idea if you think about it. I don't find it that radical, but it is because you're giving a lot of power to someone that doesn't have a lot of uh, necessarily, they have a lot of personal experience and they have training, but they don't have a lot of letters after their name necessarily. You know? And I have to give the, the, uh, the uh, Bethlehem and the whole research team uh, a lot of credit for allowing this research to happen because it was really out of their control completely, and they placed it into the hands of the peer health coach. Uh, and so um, I think that's hard in our American system. In our American system, as you well know, the hierarchies are alive and well, and sure. the patient isn't really considered always as an expert. Um, it's, it's the wonderful good doctor that recognize, to me that recognizes that. Um, it's the great therapist that recognizes that. To me, that's how I rate uh, healthcare providers: is how willing are they to understand that I ha I am willing to know my body. I know my body better than they know my body, but they have information I don't have, and that's why I'm going to them um, to help. You know that kind of relationship. Uh, I don't know about uh, we in the in the rest of the world. I know Australia, we used a couple of articles from Australia. They're doing some telehealth. It's telecounseling. It's not health coaching in the spinal cord injury community. So this concept of peer mentor as coach is not anywhere. This was the first time this was done. And I think it will probably be adopted. I'm hoping it becomes adopted here. But I think in other other areas, other countries, uh, it might be easier, more easy to adopt because of their systems. Yeah, I mean, it, it stands to reason that it's something that anybody 
could use, and there probably is a need for, you know, even in Germany. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, hopefully there's a little bit less to coach for in a more integrated healthcare system. One might imagine. But You know, I got to say that we, we have some Canadian colleagues that are very interested in peer support, and they also have been really interested in trying to how do we get more community support for people with spinal cord injury. And I think that part of it is because it's such a um, – uh, it's so – the term that comes to mind is catastrophic because it it affects every area of a person's life and every system in their body. (laughs) And they have to be able to, um, to then find the expertise and the resources in so many areas. And, uh, so I, I, it does seem like you might be, you might be right that it's, it's, um, it's may not be needed on the same level, but I think that one of some of the things that we thought about from the beginning of this is trying to make it scalable, and how do you make it feasible? So we weren't at that stage when we were just looking for efficacy, but we kept that in mind from the beginning because we wanted to make sure that if we were going to design this thing, that in, in, in due time it could actually be used and that it would be low cost so that um, and that anyone could do it anywhere in the country. So there's you're taking away geographic limitation. So it's completely over the phone and there's nothing else that we've seen like that either. So uh, hopefully <laughs> because we are in this very complicated American system and I think every health system is actually fairly complicated. Um, but when we, it comes to spinal cord injury, I yeah, think that's true. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that we could then um, help to fill the gap that in the context of where we are today, which that could change very soon. We will see. <laughs> but um, it may be even more important that we are then able to have people that could be fill these roles in a very powerful way and not need to be a doctor or a PhD, and that could drive down some costs, and not to mention preventing secondary conditions and other things for people. And, you know, this, this person isn't taking the role of a healthcare provider at all. That is not the point. They're actually the liaison many times and the referrer, the person that's referring. And the, the, I think they're, they're not there to challenge the system. They're there, they're there, they are there to help people navigate the system. And if, if, if the peer health coach can be talking, can be a go-between sort of, um, and, and, and answer, be that person that is filling in those gaps uh, willingly, knowingly, and effectively. It's only going to improve everybody's services, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, as, you know, as a clinician myself, I, this type of model sounds of, of enormous benefit. Again, we're awash in a sea of information. There's all sorts of questionable, you know, websites and forums and everything out there. The idea of folks who um, you know, are, are diligent about what they're doing and are, are sharing, you know, good information that obviously has worked for them, helping in this manner, it seems better than, than just obviously just kind of letting things go randomly and seeing what, what the Internet brings up. Or, and it, again, the lack of motivation is, is, a, is a major factor towards accessing healthcare in the, in the first place. And the lack of knowledge of what to access, that's all key. And that's not something that clinicians can do anything about can't do much about you know helping people if they're not if they're not there in the first place right that that can't be your responsibility exactly (laughs) and that is where we realize that that's why this is a different role and still a very important one because there are people that are falling through the cracks and you can't go out and find them (laughs) and how do we try to find them where they're at which is the other reason this is in people's homes as and over the phone so they don't have to go anywhere if they don't want to or do anything if they don't want to but they still can know that they're going to be supported and then when they're ready 
they know that support is there. And then they might be ready to come into you. And you can have all the services you want uh, uh, ready for them, um, but they need to be able to get there. <laughs> now, I know you guys have in mind an even larger trial, right? Yes. We're hoping. And is that, is that underway? The, the grant has been submitted. As of 10 a.m. Okay. this morning. As of today we at 10. Wow. East Coast time. Okay. So, time uh, to celebrate. Okay. Very we good. won't know till the end of September. We, okay. We've done but, our due diligence. Now we wait for the reviewers. Well, now that we've discussed it in the podcast, I'm sure it's going to be approved. Right? <laughs> thank you. I know. It couldn't be more timely. We, can't, we cannot thank you more. We did write that we'll in the grant, send by us the way. To, to the reviewers. Okay. And uh, as you're thinking about, you know, an, an even uh, larger trial, uh, have you also started to think a little bit about who might pay for something like this? There's also a huge, obviously, body of, of rehabilitation research, medical research in general, uh, of which makes perfect sense, but, and it's going to save the system money, but how does it get started up in the first place? What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, I have a few thoughts, but I don't purport to know the answers um, so I also see this as a role that a peer mentor, for example, I'm kind of a burned out peer mentor. Uh, I've, I've had my, I've lived with my injury as for so long that I don't, I'm not obsessed with certain things that certain pe that newly injured people are obsessed with. And they don't really want to see me anyway. They, the families want to see me, but they want to see the success story. And by that, I mean the person that's walking and no longer has a spinal cord injury, basically. And, um, and I'm not that person. And you know what? I'm fine with the person that I am. So I don't need to be walking or whoever, whatever I was before. I'm just fine as me. Um, so I want to work with people who are starting to understand that what they're living with is more what their life is, what they're going to be physically living with, and they want to now start thinking about moving forward, whatever that looks like. And so I actually see this as a potential addition to a peer support program that's volunteer. And, you know, I could work with one or two people whenever I'm ready. I could work with one or two people in the community, calling them every now and again. It doesn't need to be the strict protocol that this, obviously, research study is. Um, I see that as a very um, realistic option. Uh, I would love for uh, this next trial, if we get it, to show uh, we're going to be focusing a lot on secondary conditions and to show that this kind of interaction, hopefully, there's a lot of hopes in these, in these statements, but will, will show impact. And we can relate. We do know that patient activation, we know that that correlates directly uh, an increase in patient activation just by a couple of not even points, but like, yeah, just by a couple of points mm -hmm. affects time in the hospital. There's, there's, a, there's, a date, there's data that shows that. Um, and I think the more we can start showing this interaction uh, can reduce strain on the system, I think we can eventually find a paid space here. That's going to take a while. I'm the first person to admit that. But I think the more, you know, if we're going to work, we're hoping to work with five other um, rehabs setting, uh, rehab hospitals in our next, in this next bigger grant. To me, that's going to be building their capacity. And if we can start building capacity and, and more, more rehabs and systems see that this is a benefit, they probably will be working a little harder to incorporate this into what they're, what they're doing. Um, and you know, there's, there's been, been a little bit of research of 
of you know, healthcare professionals saying, we need more peer involvement in what we're doing. This is beneficial. And so we're hoping that this next, this next phase, A, is accepted, and B, shows um, impact and, and um, effect so that we can really push hard for uh, United Spinal to adopt this, for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation to adopt this, for other places to adopt this and think about um, incorporating peer health coaches into their models. Another thing that is happening is that CARF is now looking at requiring having peer support programs. And so that is going to be a component that they're really looking at for any rehab, such as a standard of care. So to be able to use part of whatever they're providing could be some of this. It's, it is low cost. It's just not a lot of a person's time, in part because it's very targeted. Even the, the centers that are participating, we used directly, we actually doubled the amount of time it took for Sarah and Stothy to do this in our, in our pilot trial to give to the sites. And they still said, is this enough time for these people to do this over the phone? And we're like, it is with this model because it's very focused and targeted. And uh, the evidence base and the structured conversations really helped to, to make it effective in a, in a less amount of time. So, um, you know, well... That, that's going to be one of the questions is, is how we, we make sure that it, there's a, a way that it can continue. The Chronic Disease Self-Management Program by Kate Lorig, and there are some other, like, uh, the CDC-funded kind of general population studies or uh, larger chronic disease population studies that have been doing some of these kinds of things to try to offer education and maybe peer-led education in groups. Those programs uh, are now, they're get going through independent living centers, for instance. So that's another possibility. And what happens is they have a train-the-trainer model where those centers will pay small amounts of money, but it keeps um, the CDSMP, the Chronic Disease Self-Management Program, going uh, so that they can do the training, and then people adopt that and just and have that as part of their, their caterer of services that their staff do. So there are some possibilities for how this could be, and, and luckily it's a pretty nominal cost. Um, so we're hopeful that we'll be able to, to figure some of those things out. Well, I'm hopeful right along with you. It's, uh, I think uh, both uh, you know, your proof of concept paper, which uh, explains everything in more detail, I encourage folks to, to read that too about the, the intervention and then uh, now building on the evidence of the randomized trial. Two important papers. I hope it'll be joined uh, before too long, by uh, a third larger randomized controlled trial, more definitive, that uh, builds up evidence for all the key players to start to implement this type of peer intervention. Uh, I thank you very much for joining me, guys, on the RehabCast. It's a good conversation. Thank you. It was a lot of fun, and um, good luck to you. Yeah, thank you. And that's it for this edition of RehabCast. Thanks for joining us. The secret sauce to our show is audio engineer Jenny Amet. If you have ideas for RehabCast or other feedback, we want to hear it. Please shoot me an email at docvox at gmail.com. That's D-O-C-V-O-X at gmail.com. I hope to see you in Atlanta this October. I'll be podcasting from the conference halls and sessions and talking with as many of you as I can. It should be a blast.
podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.